You're listening to episode 414 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hello, Max. Welcome back east. I am back home, back in the studio, just slightly over 8,000 miles of driving later. So uh, I'm done driving for, well, a couple of weeks anyway. He says that. He'll he'll be on the road again tomorrow, folks. <laughs> well, uh, Max, we got some, we've got a fairly substantial bunch of stories this week. We've got Ag Eagle gets operations over people approval, transitioning to UAV-dominated air forces, women drone pilots in Ukraine, an autonomous Black Hawk helicopter, drone facilitates a robbery, a BV lost Carter in upstate New York, an autonomous firefighting helicopter. 500 drones celebrate a games anniversary, much to Amber's delight, and how to increase lithium battery lifespans. So it's, we've got a lot of stories, so we should get started. What do you think, Max? Let's get started, David. Well, this first news is kind of amazing. Um, we've been talking about operations over people, or OOP, for at least five years now. And Ag Eagle's EBX series of drones are the first and only UAVs qualified to be approved by the FAA. This was from UASweekly.com. So Ag Eagle Aerial Systems, Inc. announced that the EBX series comply with Category 3 operations of a small UAS over people rules. Yeah, and those rules were established by the FAA in March last year, 2021. And uh, apparently Ag Eagle is the not only the first, but the only company to have drones on the market that comply with these rules. And so EB drone operators won't need to get an FAA waiver for OOP or operations over moving vehicles as well. So the major milestone would be achieved by Ag Eagle following months of work, historic reliability review, and extensive conducting by the Virginia Tech Mid-Atlantic Aviation Partnership. Wow, that's going to be one of our two original test sites that we get to talk about, Max. And it was based on our means of compliance the MAAP has developed and which is accepted as proof of compliance by the FAA. So the test sites are still out there and they're still doing positive work. Yeah, for sure. The family of EB fixed-wing UAS that are impacted here include the EBX mapping drone, the EBGO for surveying and mapping, as well as the EBTAC, T-A-C, for government tactical mapping. And so the EB is currently approved for use by the U.S. Department of Defense, and this is under that blue SUAS 2.0 program, right, which limits the manufacture of uh, of the drones that can be used by the U.S. government. But the EB is also uh, approved for use uh, BV loss in Brazil, uh, also for operations over people and BV loss operations in Canada. And they're also the first drone to receive the EASA C2 certification, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency certification, as well as a design verification that's uh, 
important for these kinds of operations under uh, EASA. So, uh, David, maybe we should uh, we can review just really quickly what these rules are, the different categories. It's it's pretty simple. Category one is for small under 0.55 pound drones. Uh, they cannot uh, contain exposed rotating parts. Under uh, category two, as well as category three, and again, it's category two. I think it's a no. It's category three that's category applicable three. here, right? Um, those uh, provide performance-based eligibility and operating requirements when they're being used over uh, over people. And uh, this is a category. These are categories two and three that can weigh more than 0.55 pounds, but don't have a Part thir- uh, 21 airworthiness certificate. In the case of uh, Category 2, you uh, may not operate a small UAS in sustained flight over open-air assemblies unless they are uh, compliant with remote ID. And there's a definition for remote assemblies. But the Category 3 small UAS have some additional operating restrictions. Again, may not operate over an open-air assembly, and you can only operate over people if the unmanned aircraft is over a closed or restricted access site, and everybody on that site is on notice that a small UAS may be flying over them, or the small UAS does not maintain sustained flight over any person unless that person is participating directly in the operation or they're located under a covered structure or inside a a vehicle that can provide protection in case uh, the small UAS falls. So we'll have a link in the show notes to uh, this uh, information from the FAA that really outlines what these different categories are and what they're applicable to. But it's definitely a major uh, accomplishment for Ag Eagle and also the Mid-Atlantic Aviation Partnership that's done so much testing um, to uh, demonstrate that uh, these uh, are safe UAS. It sets a standard, which is a good. You know, the FAA has tried to defer a lot of this sort of testing and and developing the underneath requirements out to the test centers. In this case, this the um, MAAP did exactly what they were um, brought on to do, which is provide standards for this and a way to meet the standards set up by the FAA. So good for both organizations. Congratulations. So let's talk about transitioning from human pilots to drones. And this was from nationaldefensemagazine.org. The opinion piece argues that manned military aircraft have issues, pilot health and safety, and high cost. But there's a solution. Unmanned aircraft or drones that can address some of these issues, they are generally expendable, cost less, and uh, don't represent a loss of life possibility. So... So that's good. Now, the article is not saying that unmanned aircraft should completely overtake, that manned combat aircraft should be abandoned. They're advocating for a different kind of a relationship. And it's one we've 
used to talking about, which is a loyal wingman um, process where you'd have a supplementing manned aircraft with unmanned so that you used unmanned vehicles as force multipliers. And the military should plan to transition towards a UAV-dominated air force. But again, it's kind of a poor choice of words. It isn't a UAV-dominant air force, but it's, I guess, the quantity of aircraft would be there would be more UASs and UAVs over manned aircraft. But you're never going to be able to replace the manned aircraft. No, although maybe it depends on who you ask. But yeah, probably not. I'm I'm reminded by the uh, conversation in Top Gun Maverick concerning uh, unmanned aircraft taking over, and you know, do you uh, eliminate the pilot entirely? And uh, of course, in the movie, you don't eliminate the pilot. But we'll see if that holds. Um, in uh, actual practice in the coming decades. But you can eliminate the man, Hmm. and that brings us to our next story, which is a new school in in Kiev is training women to pilot drones. This is from UALpublicradio.org. Female pilots of a Ukraine school have opened recently to teach Ukrainian women how to operate drones. Now, Drones are probably the number one talked about weapon in the current war between Ukraine and Russia on both sides. And the Ukrainians have been using a lot of men using drones, um, but evidently they're beefing up their forces with women. And the article points out, well, a number of different things, but one is that drones can be relatively low cost, but can also uh, tip the balance in armed conflict and uh, cites an example or two of where that's happened in the past. And uh, I mean, certainly we, as you say, David, we see the role of of drones in in this particular conflict uh, and the important role that they play. I guess most Ukrainian drone pilots are men. And so this school, the Female Pilots of Ukraine, is uh, focused on strictly on training women. Uh, article mentions uh, women who are uh, military student pilots, but also civilians as well. And of course, yeah, that's just becoming making them a force multiplier. You know, um, there's no difference between a man flying a drone and a, and a woman flying a drone. So um, in the situation, all it's in all hands on deck and it it's good that they recognize that they can implement women in this kind of combat role. Yep. So it is kind of weird, Max, seeing a picture of a UH-60 with a sling load and there's nobody inside of it. This was from Hellas.com. Pilotless Blackhawk flies logistic and rescue missions. DARPA's at it again. DARPA and Sikorsky. And this was about a demonstration for the United States Army where Sikorsky and DARPA showed this autonomous Black Hawk helicopter, and they demonstrated how it could perform cargo resupply missions, rescue operation, um, things like that. And as I recall, David, this is an optionally piloted aircraft. Yeah. When we talked about this first, when they first started testing it as a test aircraft and not necessarily in, like, combat environment, 
scenarios. Um, basically, the pilot got in, flipped flicked a switch, and it became an um, a remotely piloted aircraft, and vice versa. So, the goal here is to have an aircraft that, um, depending upon the mission, you could have um, men, a, a pilot and crew aboard, or if it's a higher value issue, you could have uncrewed people. It, it could be uncrewed. And I would imagine this would have a great benefit in operations where you know you you can uh, utilize your your manpower your resources more effectively if you have an option. If the mission doesn't require an onboard crew, then you don't have to you know you don't have to provide one. And I think it also probably has uh, commercial applications as well. I don't know if that's the long-term strategy here. Maybe, maybe not with the Blackhawk, but uh, certainly with others. But the technology is there. You know, Cayman has the, the K-Max has been optionally manned for years, and you know, and, and and it has actually flown in combat situations for the Marine Corps. There are a lot of Blackhawks out there, and if you can reduce the amount of crews to operate the Blackhawks, I mean, that acts as a force multiplier too, because the Crews can act um, for more important missions and secondary supply missions, etc., could be done by a remotely piloted. So you're getting more pilots, you know, even the military has got a pilot shortage. So this is one way to get around it. But it is really impressive that a full size helicopter like the Black Hawk can be um, flown remotely and complete all of these missions that a normal Black Hawk would do. Hmm. You know, David, uh, a lot of times when you uh, look at criminals, uh, sometimes you say to yourself, "God, these these folks just don't seem too bright. You know, they they do they do you know dumb things." And every once in a while, you run across criminals who kind of do something clever. And thus, our next story: How a DJI mini drone enabled a $147,000 ATM robbery. This is from DroneDJ.com, and it took place in broad daylight in France. You know, Max, this is kind of a spy movie kind of technique, too. It is. It absolutely is. So uh, this ATM didn't have any indication of a break-in. There, there was nothing damaged at the ATM, but... Police did see some damage to a small air vent, and when they looked at this uh, surveillance video, uh, they they saw something very interesting. Someone flew a drone into the air vent, and once inside, pushed a button that opened a door, allowing the thieves to enter into and gain access to the ATM. <laughs> that's that's hysterical. So they they got in there. Uh, now, here's here's the part that's maybe not too bright, because apparently they managed, it says, to open the cash box by dialing in a secret code that is typically only known to the couriers who are in charge of transporting the cash. So that right there tells you, okay, inside job. But, you know, they figured out a way of getting to the, be able to put the code in. So it definitely, one of the thieves had previously worked as a mechanic for a company that maintains the ATM. So, needless to say, they did catch these guys. 
but the secret codes of the cash machines were not changed frequently enough to thwart such an incident. You know, Max, you would think that with all of this stuff every time, we're all told to change our passwords every 30 seconds these days, it seems like. Something like an ATM password or ATM code probably should change more than just a couple of times a year. Yeah, you would think so. But what a great idea. I mean, well, great. What a <laughs> what a brilliant idea anyway to uh, to fly this drone through the air vent and to uh, you know, use it with a, a push rod and actuator that would press the button to let let the thieves in. Clever use of drones. But Max, mm. we also got to give him credit for the flight ability. Yeah, yes. I mean, it, it, not only not only it was clever to fly, but but whoever actually did the flying needs to get some credit too. Their credit will probably give them a couple of years off of their sentence. But that being said, it, it is an impeccable piece of flying to take a little drone in and do this. So it's definitely Mission Impossible kind of technique. So. Results were as usual. They got caught, but it was definitely a. Um, we will make a good made-for-television episode at some point. Yes. So, Governor Hoshul, how do you say her name? I don't know. Hoshul. Hoshul. Um, Governor Hoshul announces major progress. To, or, let, let's start again. The New York governor announces major progress towards <laughs> boosting New York's. Uncrewed Aircraft Systems Industry. Uh, it's a press release from NewAir.org. Um, Governor Hoshul announced that the New York Unmanned Aircraft Systems test site, NewAir, got approval from the FAA to fly uncrewed aircraft systems, BV Loss, across some 50 miles of airspace in the New York drone corridor. Boy, Max, it's been almost 10 years since we went up there. Do you know that? No, has it really? Oh, my. So uh, New Air now can fly civilian drones from Syracuse International Airport to Griffiths International Airport in Rome, that's Rome, New York, where they're located, without the need of visual observers. That's big. That's very big. And what's a drone corridor? It's a specific area where drones can operate back and forth. Now, what's really impressive about this is they are operating from Syracuse International and Griffiths International, and... We um, when we were up there, they were just starting to fly drones without interference with the active airport, and so they clearly have worked out those kinks flying from the two international airports, and they're doing testing back between the fifty miles. But there's more, huh, Max? There is. The New York governor governor also announced that New York would be providing new air. With an additional $21 million in funding, that to cultivate the UAS industry hub along the corridor in central New York. And I'm sure New Air can make a very good use of that $21 million to promote this. And uh, Max, you're familiar with that part of the country. It's a very tech-savvy area. There's an infrastructure there to grow the UAS business with universities and manufacturing um, and just basically technology, that whole upstate New York is pretty much filled with that. So 
New Air has also entered an agreement with Quebec-based V-Ports. Now, we've talked about V-Ports in the past. And what does the agreement say, Max? They're looking to develop an international advanced air mobility uh, corridor, that between Syracuse International Airport and Quebec, Canada. So this is a cross-the-border corridor. And they want that corridor to be a platform for commercial cargo transport operations. This using eVTOL aircraft or large helicopter-sized drones. So, uh, yeah, like you say, David, uh, upstate New York has, well, they've really focused on this whole topic, this whole technology. And they're not doing it because it's bright and shiny and new and fun and drones and wow, look what we can do. But they're looking for economic benefit. This is an investment in, you know, in their future. And I think they've, they really stepped up and, and uh, are, are doing some pretty exciting things. We do have a video uh, that uh, gives you an idea of this 50-mile BV loss corridor. And we'll put that in the show notes. You can watch that video right there. And it kind of gives you an idea of what does the landscape look like underneath this corridor? And, you know, what are the population areas, the roads, things like that. So it's an interesting look. So let's talk about autonomous firefighting, which is, you know, in a way sounds a little bit um, oxymoronish considering all these years we've been telling people that if you're flying a drone near a fire, don't do it. There, There's manned aircraft and, you know, if you fly, we can't slogans, etc. But Rain Industries announced an autonomous firefighting helicopter. This is from avfoil.com. Rain Industries says every wildfire starts small and the rain system contains ignitions within 10 minutes to prevent catastrophic wildfires. Um in this day and age, that would be an amazing feat. So the intent here with this uh, MK2, Mark II aircraft, this autonomous firefighting aircraft, it's a demonstration type of aircraft. The idea is not that you would use this to attack large existing wildfires. Rather, it's more targeted. So if there is a, <laughs> a little bit of smoke... If there is a fire that's starting, that's where this uh, this UAS could be utilized. And we'll put a link again in the show notes uh, to the Rain Industries website, but they have a background video running that shows the uh, the MK2, the Mark II firefighting aircraft deploying uh, some water on a on a small fire, and it's a it's a stream, it's a jet almost, it's it. It, it's kind of, uh, you know, what, what you might see out of a garden hose, maybe a little bit more if you have really high pressure. But it's a really targeted kind of a uh, firefighting application. And it carries about 30 gallons of water, or I guess um, anti-incinerant. Um, flight time is over one hour, and the response, radi- response radius is 23 miles. There is no pilot on board, of course, because it is a UAS, and a remote provider provides oversight. So it's flown BV loss. So, you know, early prevention is kind of important, you know, and what happens though, though, is you've got to be able to find these things 
fairly quickly. So I don't know how their solution on that is. You know, how do they find these hotspots early enough to be able to implement these? So, and they're going to try to do a rollout next summer in California. So, we wish them luck and and check out uh, Rain Arrow and see see how it works, and we'll see if it's a help or a hindrance. Well, Max, I've never played it, but my significant other has. Candy Crush evidently turned ten years old. They put up five hundred drones to celebrate the tenth anniversary of the game. But where they chose to do it probably might not have been the best thought out place. They tend to be sensitive when things are flying out of the ordinary. And that's New York City. The video, again, we've got a video that we'll have in the show notes. Really, um, well, it captures the uh, the drone show, you know, pretty nicely. It's a great drone show. In fact, you know, I'd be interested in, in finding out who uh, put it on because it really looked to me, David, a lot like the drone show that was at the Albuquerque Balloon Fiesta this year. I, I saw some uh, sort of design elements of the of the drone show that looked really familiar, but some people loved it, and other people had the opposite reaction and thought it was terrible, thought that it was uh, advertising, uh, a city-sized billboard with commercial intent. Not everybody liked it, but... I thought it was kind of cool. Now, I would agree that if something like that appeared every night, you know, that would get kind of old and, and maybe irritating. But I don't know. It's a, it's a one-off kind of a thing. I don't know. I liked it. Well, yeah, we're biased. Um, That's You true. know, but it, what I was curious about, and um, Amber, when I showed it to her, um, pointed out, she, her first question was, is it sped up? And I was like, I, I don't know. I mean, it seemed pretty fluid, but it might have been sped up. So I don't. We don't really know how long the actual flight was. But that being said, I, I mean, people, it, it's going to be like this going forward. You know, I don't think there would have been as much if there was suddenly Candy Crush explosions and fireworks. I don't think there would be the uproar that it currently occurs. But, you know, New York airspace, people are sensitive. You know, they don't like the helicopters flying around. They don't like other aircraft flying around. And they get very get very nervous when things like that happen. So especially without any real notice. And so part of it understandable. But again, it was a good drone show. So check it out. And then go play some Candy Crush, I guess. Uh <laughs> All right, our last article, Chinese scientist new gel filing could triple lifespan of lithium batteries for EVs or drones. This is from scmp.com. Beijing University of Chemical Technology researchers say they reached a new technology that could triple the lifespan of lithium batteries and decrease the risk of battery fires. Okay, Max, this is your book. You're the, you're the engineer. Did this make sense? Yeah, kind of. Uh, so lithium batteries have a couple of features. Uh, one is that 
if you charge them, discharge them, charge them, discharge them, and do that over and over again, eventually over time, their um, their capacity decreases. So you can't get as much out of them as you could when they were new. And we all see that with, uh, with our mobile phones, I think. Um, the other thing is that uh, typical lithium batteries contain a liquid electrolyte. And that is sort of the cause of this uh, this feature where they lose their uh, capacity over time. And it also is a factor in lithium battery fires that we've all seen. So what these researchers in Beijing have come up with is a sort of a gel polymer electrolyte. So it's got a different chemistry. It still works with the lithium battery, but it doesn't cause the battery to lose its power over time. Now, uh, capacity retention is generally measured as a ratio, the ratio of discharge capacity to initial discharge capacity. And they conducted some tests, and they discharged them to uh, fully, to 100% discharge, depth of discharge, which is kind of the um, you know worst-case scenario. But they found that after 300 cycles of this charge-discharge uh, test, again, with 100% depth of discharge, the, the battery they were testing still retained 92% of its capacity, whereas uh, with traditional batteries with the liquid electrolytes were uh, reduced to only 30% capacity. So that's a huge, huge difference. So why do we care about about all this. Well, besides the the fact that the gel is not prone to the electrical uh, uh, to the uh, fires flammable flammable um, but there are other applications uh, not only in drones but things like electric cars and and airplanes and things that are using uh, lithium batteries. So this is something to uh, to watch, I think. I don't know what the downsides of the gel polymer electrolyte is, if, if there are any, um, but certainly the, the lifetime of the batteries is, is extended significantly with this gel. Yeah, and that would, I mean, if you're talking about range for e-vertals or, or electric cars and UASs, um, battery life, that's the big hurdle to overcome. So here we have a surprising um, solution that may be come the standard in the future, and th then you can go back and say you heard it first on the UAV Digest. <laughs> so we got one more video of the week, Max, and I thought this was kind of um, cheeky but fun, which was the ten fastest military drones and unmanned vehicles in the world. It's pretty self-explanatory, um, and you can you can decide whether you agree or disagree with the choices on the fastest manned and unmanned vehicles in the world. It's kind of fun. Well, all right, then. With that, we'll say thanks for listening to the UAV Digest. We really appreciate it. You can find us at the UAVdigest.com. If you're... Uh, telling a friend or an associate about the podcast and can't remember the uavdigest.com. If you just say dronepodcast.com, guess what? That works too. So look for us there. If you want uh, show notes, 
there at the website. We have a lot of videos to watch uh, this week, so check those out. If uh, you want to go directly to the show notes, we have a shortcut link, and that's the uavdigest.com slash 414. And, of course, as this comes out, any of the veterans that listen to our show, um, happy Veterans Day. And you can also find us on all the social media and, of course, our Slack listener team. And you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the uavdigest.com. We will be taking next week off because, believe it or not, I will be traveling. And I, we will also be, um, I will be doing the debut of Pawn Stars, Do America at the American Helicopter Museum here in Westchester. So um, that is our, our viewing party. So I'm going to be taking that time off and then I'm going to be traveling. But we will return next week. So you'll have UAV Digest for your Black Friday shopping to listen to. <laughs> so with that, I'm going to say this is David in Delaware. And Max back in Connecticut. Thank you for listening.